Hey, good evening, LCM. You have made it to week five. Come on now. Much like our teachings, you didn't just arrive here. You're not just going to arrive at a place as we begin to talk about intimacy through security night. We've been building towards this the entire time that we've been together. It's been building. It's been building. In week one, you learn to put to death your Nabal nature so that every step after that is focused on building the Abigail of your spouse. See, church, you have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature. It's to supernaturally imbue Abigail to your spouse. Consider what a small part of the story that Nabal inhabited. It was just a few verses. He was a character for sure, but he wasn't the main focus. That story is about Abigail and the king of kings. Hey, we continued that building into week two. It's here you learn that the perfect design of God as a groom and the church as the bride, it's reflected in the design of a husband and wife, displaying constant partnership, constant partnership, which establishes an essential, cherished, treasured co-easership as the husband is inspired to initiate and as the wife is supernaturally empowered to reciprocate. Yes, yeah, she is. <laughs> and then we arrived at week three, where you learn that the cosmos itself is in chaos, that there are constant negative pressures upon you to try to cause you to conform with the power of this world, but that God established one right order that it was our job to flourish within that right order. We make shalom. We don't just try to keep it. In week three, we learn the secret to advancing the kingdom in our homes and in the world all around us. In week four, I think a revelation for most people in the room is that you learn that conflict resolution is more than just about how to fight fairly. You learn that growing in your godly decisions is a matter of an ever-building progress and process of each of these lessons that we just taught. The necessity of conflict helps us to find the will of God, partner with his design in our marriages, and flourish as we implement his various desires for us on earth. Amen? Amen. Look, all of this leads us to week five. Week five, which is titled Intimacy through security. And the homework that you would have had and gone through is read through Song of Songs as just the plain work that it is, not doing an in-depth Bible study on it, but seeing it as it is written and impacts you. You would have con had continual use of the love languages, speaking them to one another, and the use of the Abigail and the ball cards. And you would have listened to the message titled, Her Ministry Cycle. Did you get a chance to listen to that message? Yes. We listened to it today for the first time since it was taught. And uh, I have to say, I, I, I think, you know, I must have some short-term memory issues because I didn't remember. I waited for the next point and the next point on bated breath. And uh, then we got to put it into practice. Look, as we embark on this glorious journey this evening, and why don't you go ahead and look at your honey and say it's going to be glorious. We want to reacquaint with a few things that Jesus said to the first church that he addressed 
in the book of Revelation. And remember, God is the groom and the church is the bride. Jen, read to us Revelation 2, 4 through 6. Yet as I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The first act that you see here after your wedding vows was to consummate your marriage. Nothing could be more important than continuing to do the things you did at first. Oh, that's, good. that's a good word. It's really as simple as your marriage started with a physical consummation and your marriage continues with physical consummation. Look, when this is our daily practice, when it's among our highest priorities, I mean the highest importance, it keeps the supernatural lamp of passion burning in your renewed covenant. Mm. It's my highest goal to embody this quote that I have every day. In fact, this is the, this quote that we're going to show is, uh, or I'm going to tell you is right outside of our bedroom door. Uh, so we can see it as we enter into our room every day. It says, let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let her make him sorry to leave. I got to tell you, it's tough to break away even to come here this evening because it's my highest goal to pursue, to value, to chase after Jennifer as my exclusive, cherished, treasured possession. I do that every day in a physical sense and in a spiritual sense. We're going to read to you from John 10, 10. John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy and I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. As we engage with this scripture, let's uh, not immediately fill in the devil's name here as the thief. Let's not even fill in any of the false teachers that were in the day that were that this could also be alluding to. Let's talk about the thief in our own marriages more than just the devil. This thief that is coming to steal the very lamp of passion that you have for one another, that began your very relationship with each other. Let's talk about a few of those thieves now. Yes. How many of us get home and we, after a long day, we flip on the TV and just to chill out with each other. But before we know it, we've fallen asleep, right? Some people do that. Yep. Instead of returning to the things that you did at first. Let's talk about the child that still sleeps in bed with you. Oh, uh, oh, now, now you get all awake. The TV didn't do it, but the kid's sleeping in your bed. Now we're all offended here. Dad, why is, why is the bed shake every evening? You're too old to be way. in here. Get out. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about the child that sleeps in a bed with you. That's like a lampshade that's smothering the burning passion that your marriage started in. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, the pressures, the pressures of life, the pressures of work, the pressures of parenting and motherhood and concerns from the day that you didn't circumcise away from your heart that acts to pour water on that fire of your intimacy. 
See, these are all thieves. These and many more things are trying to steal from you. They're trying to kill the passion that you have, destroy the very intimacy that God intends and has blessed beyond measure. These are thieves that we're going to help uh, destroy today in this place. So let's make a connection from the very beginning. Because all of you came in here thinking about making a connection tonight. <laughs> the very first church that is addressed in the book of Revelation still had all of their doctrine right. They were still getting along in a lot of ways just fine. But they had drifted from their very first passion. The same thing happens in couples. And do not let the thief steal from you the very thing that God intended to form your marriage and to sustain your marriage. Speaking of first things, first things is best understood as the Bible story begins with the story of Eden. It starts in Eden. And here's the point. This same Bible story ends in Eden as we suit throughout the narrative of the word. Well, that should give you the understanding that your story should start and end in that very same place of Eden. So let's remind you what Eden means in the scripture. As we put up this slide. The word Eden, Strong's number 5730 and 5731, it's, uh, it's a complex word, but we're going to break it down for you a little bit. As a masculine noun. Yeah. Yeah. It denotes pleasantness, delightfulness splendidness as seen in psalm 36 verse 8 a river of delights or another way to say it is a river of edens that are present as a feminine noun it denotes sexual pleasure derived from intercourse so think about in genesis 18 12 when sarah says will i now have this pleasure or this eden mm. well did you hear that denotes sexual pleasure well, of course, Eden is also a physical location, and it's full of double entendre. But our goal is that in your marriage, you are experiencing um, Eden-like existence, one that is full of life. You see, the Bible began in Eden, and it finishes in Eden, and we want your marriage to finish in Eden, too. So that brings us... To week five. Let's begin in Song of Songs. Song of Songs 116. How handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. Mm. <laughs> now, I know all of you use the word verdant in your daily vocabulary. Let me put it in today's vernacular. The goal of week five is to have a godly and vibrant sexual life. The term verdant actually is defined. It's lush, it's rich, flourishing, thriving, teeming, prolific, overgrown, dense, thick, jungle-like. Mm. Mm. That couldn't be any better. Come on. If we made it up <laughs> and we didn't, Google got something right. Yeah, they did. Look, we're well aware that these can be difficult subjects to discuss. 
and in an effort to make things easier, we searched the Christian world to see if any of our contemporary pastors could help us out with the subject. We are really happy to tell you we found a clip that represents the very best. Say the best. The best. The best. Of what we were able to find. Excuse me, everyone. Sex! Now that I have your attention. You don't have our attention. Money! I'm listening. You had me at sex. Pervert. You have all of our attention just by screaming anything. That's good to know. What do you want to say, Michael? Woof! <laughs> this is all too often what Christians actually sound like when they begin to discuss holy, physical intimacy. They are uh, kind of juvenile and like Michael from the office, they're awkward or they become bashful. We just want to let you know tonight that God is not bashful about this topic, not even a little bit, not at all. Okay, so the question that we have for you tonight is... Is God a pervert? No. no. All right. Genesis 49, 22 through 26 says, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall with bitterness, arch with bitterness archers attacked with bitterness archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. But his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber. Because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies below, blessings of the breast and the womb, your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. You'll have to excuse my wife. I had my hand on her back. <laughs> I was rubbing her shoulders as she was reading that, and I, I distracted my wife while she was reading. I apologize for that. You're just paying attention to your blessings. That's right. Blessings, blessings, blessings. See, the context of this passage is, is that it is a father who is speaking to his son and his daughter-in-law. This is Jacob speaking and blessing Joseph. Can you picture yourself in this, this situation? You're, you're, you are looking <laughs> to your own son and you're beginning to speak to your son and his new wife. Or even better, picture your father speaking to you on your, before you're met, uh, on your wedding day between you and your new wife. See, you're supposed to be able to imagine this. This is actually a Peshat scripture listed in the plain text here. And we want you to understand something. As the scripture here is saying, with the blessings of heaven above, with the blessings of the deep that lies below, with the blessings of the breast and the womb. Somebody say breast and womb. Breast. See, you can do that. You can say that even in church. It's amazing. I can assure you that this is not just about having children and being able to feed them properly. That is not the context of what's going on. If you can imagine Jacob saying there to Joseph, may, may you be blessed with the breast and the womb. See, 
consistently throughout the scripture. This word is more than just the place where a baby may abide. This is actually talking about the blessings of the breast and the vagina. Yep, said it out loud. Loud and proud. The blessings of the breast and the vagina here. And this is consistent. This understanding and interpretation of this is consistent with the same words in scripture that refer to sexual actions that do not involve procreation, that do not involve the production of a child. If you really, really want to see something that's interesting with this very word, you ought to look in Judges 5. It gives you a very, very clear picture that we're not just talking about uh, a baby station only. Mm -hmm. Amen. Because the biblical view is that your anatomy, everybody say my anatomy, my anatomy, specifically your genitals are a blessing to your spouse. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. That's true. In addition to remembering that your genitals are a blessing to your spouse, which it, is important to remember. Yeah. Very. We want you to remember Genesis 49 that we just read. It is the very written word of God. In addition to that, Jesus is the word of God made into flesh. So let's ask another question. Are we more holy than Jesus? No. no. My wife's going to explain this. So the obvious answer, of course, is no. We would never say that we're more holy than Jesus. But we act like we're more holy than Jesus when we're uncomfortable with or we refuse to talk about sexuality the way the word does. Oh, that, that's good. You guys seeing the connection that we're making here. Now, we would like to have a few passages read by some of you guys in order to fan into flame this very fact. So, where is, uh, where's Miss Hannah Parsons? Raise your hand, Miss Hannah. 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 She's been practicing her love language. You can do this, Hannah. So, Hannah, you're going to turn to Song of Songs, chapter 1, and you're going to read verses 12 and 13. Yeah, why don't you stand up? I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Let's go to Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh, resting between my breasts. Hey, Peyton, where was that sachet of myrrh? Her breasts. Wow. It doesn't sound like just baby bottles, does it? <laughs> so uh, we have another passage we'd like to read. Uh, where's Miss Joy Riasora? Raise your hand, Miss Joy. Okay. Miss Joy, if you could read from Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Okay, it says, His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. We're talking about arousal. We're talking about being awakened. But I want to know, Chris, how did you get your left arm under her head unless y'all were lying prone? Yeah. See, 
the imagery here. Yeah, yeah, Chris. Chris just <laughs> yes. caught a mental image. That's why he's got a new kid every time he shows up at church. The imagery that God is painting in his holy written word is meant to cause you to have to engage with human sexuality in a godly way. His hand is under her head. His right arm is embracing her and she is aroused. That is as anointed as John 3.16 is, yeah. and we have to grow up and, and begin to engage it that way. Amen. Let's embrace another scripture. And uh, Mr. Caleb Brown, where are you in the house? Raise your hand. Caleb. Caleb, read for us Song of Songs chapter 4 and verse 5. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that gaze among the lily, graze among the lilies. I am so glad that he said two. I'm yeah. so glad that he said gaze among the lilies. <laughs> We've got a few Freudian style slips going on here. Listen, written into the holy word of God is a description of breast not to feed babies, but likened unto a particular animal, one that is soft, one that is bouncy, one that is springy. And in biblical imagery, that is so consistent that it's like teenagers looking at this table of fruit down here and seeing an eggplant. And that emoji means to them something a lot different than it did to your grandmother. Okay, or seeing a papaya at the center of the table with an oddly placed zucchini. There is, there is nothing about the technical definition of those things that should call to mind any sense of sexuality, and yet they do immediately to all of us. That's not because you're perverted. That's because God's creation speaks forth a message and God specifically speaks about female anatomy in certain ways. In fact, we're going to find out that he wanted it to be captivating to a husband. You know, as we're reading this scripture, all these scriptures, particularly from Song of Songs, now put it into context as it relates to 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is God breathed. And useful for correcting, rebuking, teaching, training in righteousness, so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Oh, yeah. That equally as much applies to these scriptures that we're reading as any others that are stones on our three by five index cards. So let's take one more scripture, uh, Mr. Cody Stevens. Yeah. Where you at, man? Big slice. Let me arise. Yes, you <laughs> shall. Read Song of Songs, chapter seven. Chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Your stature, is, wow. your stature is like that of the palm, and your breast like clusters of fruit. And I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples. 
and your mouth like the best of wine. Now, it may not be immediately obvious to you, and I see Snickers going on around the room, but in Hebrew thought, a palm tree, which is slightly wider at the base than it is right in the middle of the tree, and then clusters of fruit are at the top, is an innately uh, feminine design. That's how Hebrew see. In fact, one of the most beautiful names that you can give your daughter is Tamar which speaks of a shapely, we would think of it as an hourglass shape. But in this passage, somebody say this passage. This passage. In fact, Cody, would you come on down here? Yeah. Cody, um, as you walk up on this stage over by Pastor Wade, Cody's quite tall. So this palm tree is about Cody's height. But you would have to picture this palm tree is 30, 40 feet tall. Cody, how would you climb that palm tree? <laughs> All right, so we, uh, we got it. Let your, you know what he would do. He would fall on his back and pull that palm tree straight to it. <laughs> Listen, that imagery, that imagery is intended in the word. Ladies, if you just saw your husband inchworming up a palm tree... Well, you're about half right. Okay. That is what the Bible intended when you read those words. Do you know why? This is the one venue. Somebody say one. one. I could say monogamous venue. Where it is okay. It is godly. It is right to let your imagination run wild. What is wrong with the entire world is they have placed these thoughts in this imagery outside of its one God-ordained design. That has given everyone the idea that the topic is dirty. No, the topic is holy. It is pure, and it is righteous. It is the wicked application of an impotent Christian society that cannot talk about these things and has left it for the domain of the world. To help us with this, we want to have a group activity right here. We want you to write a sentence for your spouse in keeping with Song of Songs style speech, describing your own sexual organs as a blessing to your spouse. Yeah. And then you're going to share that sentence with your spouse out loud to each other. Amen. So you are going to write a Song of Songs style speech in this sentence describing your sexual organs as a blessing to your spouse, and then you're going to share that. Enjoy. There's your group activity. All right, sound booth, y'all quit making out back there. Okay, friends, we can see through the giggles and the turning red and all through, through the very fact that this became a joint project very quickly that you're engaging, and, and that's what we want. Now, if, uh, if it sounded to you something like this clip, 
then, uh... Excuse me, everyone. Sex! Now that I have your attention... You don't have our attention. Money! I'm listening. You had me at sex. Pervert. You have all of our attention just by screaming anything. That's good to know. What do you want to say, Michael? Woof! <laughs> Woof. If it sounded like that, you need some practice. That's a product of being in a Christian community that does not appropriately view the Word of God. One of the things you should have discovered in your homework reading through Song of Songs is that it could sound something far more like, I cannot wait to drink blended wine out of your navel. Hey, baby. Hey, baby. You want to come blow in my garden? See, that's... That is biblical speech. It's not biblical speech for the whole world. We're only demonstrating this for you because we are family. But it is godly, inspired, biblically instructed speech. When adults have to say, like, put child words uh, in the place of adult speech, you are reducing a whole area of your life, the most important area of your life, to what children should be doing, okay? The point of this entire exercise is to redefine our notions of what purity and holiness are. That's the point of the exercise. God determines what is pure. He determines what is holy. Your sixth grade Sunday school teacher might have been as far from God as anybody could be, and they do not have the right to determine for you something other than what the word says. Reject it. The entire Victorian era uh, of English society got this wrong. Anything that you enjoyed, chocolate, was sinful. I mean, Queen Victoria thought cigars were sinful. Those things have bled over into our society, into our thoughts, to corrupt one of the most holy, beautiful, biblical pictures of intimacy that there is. Matrimonial sex is a biblical blessing. Your body is for the enjoyment of your spouse. Yes, it is. We really need to strip away worldly thinking and reclaim biblical truth and sexuality. See, that's what we're helping everyone to do tonight is we are reclaiming biblical truth. And that can be seen, especially in regards to sexuality. It can be seen clearly displayed in Proverbs chapter, Proverbs chapter 5. Everybody turn with us there. And we're going to look at verses 15 through 20. Proverbs 5 verses 15 through 20. It says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public square, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? See, so we have a question for you. It's a question that has to be asked. 
is this passage actually talking about water retention or hydrological cycles? Or are we talking about breasts, about captivation, about monogamy, and about adultery in this passage? You know, you should see clearly that sex is equated with water for a reason here. It is among the most important, essential, physical, and spiritual needs of a couple. And I'm talking about sex in that regard. What do you think the Bible is teaching about importance and frequency by using this very imagery? Yeah, and it, it has very important phrasing in it. May these be yours alone. Amen. Do you hear exclusivity in that? Yours alone. Now, the biblical writers were inspired by God to write these words. They could have chosen anything, and they decided to talk about captivation, satisfaction, as it relates to breast. That's an incredible thing. The, the heart of Proverbs 5 is actually teaching about exclusivity. It's essential to your intimate life. This includes exclusivity in imagery, in thoughts, in fantasy. See... The water runs in two directions in this. It's for you and you alone. 100% of your fantasy, 100% of your thoughts, 100% of your mental image is yours and yours alone for you. the one well, the one fountain that God gave you in your life. You would never take a biblical well, fountain, or spring and just let the water run out into the streets to be dirtied by everybody else because it's the source of life. The whole concept of Proverbs 5 is that the biblical writers understood your sexual life was as life-giving as a fountain or a well, and it should be guarded and protected as exclusively yours. So we're talking about total liberation, but total exclusivity. Amen. When this passage uses the word satisfaction or captivation, it is in reference to your sex life being like a fountain flowing with life that nourishes your marriage. Not a trickle, not a small rain in a, in a desert. We are talking abundant like Viagra Falls, people. Woo! I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, Niagara Falls. <laughs> Abundant people, abundant. <laughs> oh, that, that'll make you stand up in your seat. Hey, whatever it takes to get things flowing. That's what I'm talking about. Hey, did you notice in this passage that this guy is uh, captivated by his wife's breast? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Me and this guy got something in common. <laughs> we got, we got, got, got the same likes. You know, the understanding here by being captivated by his wife's breast, it, it's indicating that they were not the sole domain of children or for feeding purposes. They were for the domain of captivating his attention and drawing him closer to her. So God made the physical attraction between the husband and his wife's breast to be a great balancing factor in his leadership in the home. He leads, yes, of course, he leads, but he's also captivated by his wife. Yeah, I've always found it somewhat strange that adipose tissue arranged in the right way could be so <laughs> captivating. That's by God's design, it is. though. 
he did that because you are never going to abuse someone that is under your authority that you're enthralled with that that you just can't stop looking at that you uh want to hold amen let's do uh let's do <laughs> song of songs chapter six and verse nine but my dove my perfect one is unique the only daughter of her mother, the favorite one of the one who bore her. The maidens saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. You can see here that his view of her reinforces security and promotes intimacy. She is perfect and she is unique among all women. Their relationship is exclusive and intimate. One of the biggest things in our marriage is that Eric, he actually speaks this passage over me a lot. And it does, it promotes something inside of me that makes me feel unique and special among all other women. And it creates that desire for intimacy with, with him because he is, he's speaking those, um, that security into me. And it's, and it's precious. Precious. I love That's it. one way to describe it. <laughs> I'd like you to see one of the responses of the man in these passages. We're going to cover these in detail later, but I just, I just want to start here. Look at Song of Songs, chapter 4, and verse 9. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. The king of Israel wrote that. He's the top authority in the land. And yet, his very heart is stolen when he sees that his wife is reciprocating his flirtation. It, he's captivated by it. She actually has full confidence and control of him in that moment. Well, her reciprocating his advances literally steals his heart with a single glance. His heart is now exclusively and intimately hers. In our day and time, this flirtation is weaponized. A, a refusal is used as a weapon. And an acceptance is used as a weapon. It was never meant to be that way. That's a, that's a sick, ungodly way to look at it. It was actually meant that the husband would pursue and initiate and be totally captivated, totally stolen away as she responded. You're choosing each other again and again and again and again. Yeah. <laughs> Look, church, everyone walks into week five with a list of questions about rules, what's acceptable and what's not. We just want to tell you that the Bible's already given the only rules necessary for a maximized marriage. The only rules necessary are the exclusivity of what you're doing and real intimacy. The actual rules that are given in the scripture are that it is exclusive just between you and your spouse. The one that God has anointed and appointed for you and that there's actual true intimacy. I have to tell you, just a, from a personal place, that my wife and I, we, when we got here, I can't tell you how good that this church has been for our entire life. 
for our entire generations, for everything about us. See, we, we shared with you last week about, a, about our wedding day. We shared some, some details there. But our intimacy has always been, uh, our, our sexuality has always been a strong part in our marriage. But our intimacy always hasn't always been a strong part. We had a physical compatibility with each other, but we had to learn how to be intimate with each other, to actually open up to each other, to actually be able to speak to each other, oh my goodness, about what we desired in the bedroom. See, an exclusivity that it's only here. We're not having to look to any other source. We're only finding the pleasure in each other, and we're able to talk in a mature fashion. We had to learn how to do that. We were terrible at that at the beginning. The reason that I'm sharing these things is because we want you to understand that the Bible lays out these guidelines to give incredible freedom within these boundaries. It's almost like God has given us boundary lines that have fallen in such pleasant places. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 and let's see how this explicitly states it here in the scripture. Hebrews, there you go. <laughs> Hebrews thirteen four. Hey, that was spoken like a man that got a hotel room in great anticipation what? of what is happening later. <laughs> Hebrews thirteen four says, "Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral." I, I want you to. I want to point out a few things to you here. Is that any sexual activity that is completely exclusive and based on transparent intimacy is already pure. Because the marriage bed is pure and must be kept pure. Any fantasies, conversations, and actions with your spouse is by definition pure. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. So introducing fantasies, conversations, comparisons. Those are really tough. You got to be careful and guard yourself against that. Comparisons with a third party. Everybody say third party. Third party. Are poisons to the well that was made pure by God. No odd numbers. Yeah. I hope you understand what we're saying here. There's a purity in an exclusivity and an intimate, transparent life between the two of you. When you start adding comparisons of former experiences, when you add comparisons about potential experiences, when you're adding these comparisons or fantasies or conversations about a third party, not with the exclusivity and the intimacy of your partner, then that poisons everything that you're doing. See, simply put, there can be no third parties to an exclusive relationship. It's no longer exclusive. You're then breaking one of the two rules that God has established. You can't have exclusivity, an exclusive monogamous relationship with yourself. <laughs> Everybody's like, oh, that's no, that's true. You cannot have an exclusive monogamous relationship with yourself. And you can also not have an exclusive monogamous relationship with any third party, whether real or fantasy, whether in your mind or in your heart, that is a violation and a direct violation of God's clearly expanded upon word. Yeah, so 
at the risk of being redundant here, but if we were going to be redundant about something, this would be it. Just do it again. If the two of you were put in Eden and there was no one else on the planet, whatever you thought of that might possibly be pleasing and you wouldn't know until you had tried it, would be pure, would be right, would be okay. But as soon as there is a third party or odd number, this becomes no longer protected and exclusive. Now, Pastor Wade said something rather quickly. He said, uh, you can't have exclusive monogamous relationships with yourself. If you spent decades masturbating, then it is not fair to your spouse to be comparing what you did by yourself with what you were only supposed to do with each other. And that image, that experience, will compete with your spouse. That is an impurity in the well. If you had a life prior to Christ that involved things that it shouldn't have, bringing that into your marriage bed makes it impure. But nothing that two people do while in Eden with each other could make a marriage bed impure unless it's not exclusive and not monogamous. Now, you cannot like those rules. In fact, well-paid Christian psychologists have written books on these subjects, and it's absolute buffoonery. They don't answer any of the questions that all of you have, and... They shy away from any difficult... The Bible simply does not give the guidelines that the Christian world would like it to have based yeah. on their preferences. Yeah. At the end of the day, the ultimate arbiter is, do you enjoy what you do? Is it between you and your spouse only? Well, leave it right there. Don't pour it in the streets, and you should have a clear conscience before God. But as soon as... It becomes about what you like to do without your spouse, what you used to do without your spouse, imagery you're having that your spouse is not involved in, then it becomes impure. And the Bible's going to make this abundantly clear. We want you to understand because the marriage bed is already pure, the only biblical example of the marriage bed becoming impure is found in First Chronicles chapter 5. And it'll be in verse one. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was the firstborn, but when he defiled his father's marriage bed, his rights as firstborn were given to the sons of Joseph, son of Israel. So he could not be listed in the genealogical record in accordance with his birthright. When we're looking at this passage and we see, but when he defiled his father's marriage bed, we want you to understand this is bringing anything that is third party into your marriage bed that then defiles your marriage bed. And this is giving you some, some clarity and examples. It's having even the thought that, hmm, this is the way that my past girlfriend or my past boyfriend used to do these certain things in bed. This is what I used to enjoy as foreplay before I met the person that I'm married to right now. Uh, these are things that defile the marriage bed that was be began in a state of purity. Yeah, even allowing yourself to feel let down because it does not measure up to a previous experience, 
that defiles your marriage bed. Whether that experience was with yourself or with a third party. Remember, the marriage bed is already pure. It must be kept pure, free of any third party comparisons or expectations. Somebody see if I can dream it. I can dream it. I can do it. Now, while that may sound like a political slogan, the truth is, is that God gives you all of the free. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, except you're not free to involve third party experiences. That includes movies that you watch, books that you might read, anything that is third party corrupting what was meant to be exclusive, protected between the two of you and only the two of you. I have had people drive across the United States to come and sit and meet with us about this topic. And the worst ones are not the ones that you would think of. The worst ones are not that somebody had an experience outside of their marriage. That's disgusting. I mean, that's, that's obviously wrong. The worst ones are actually when people have been married for 20 years and cannot tell their spouse what they're fantasizing about. That means that the closest person to you on the planet, you are not close enough with to share what is really going on in your heart and mind. It's not perverted because it went through your heart and mind. It's perverted that you cannot share it with your spouse. They don't really know you. That's not real intimacy. They are not seeing into you. God designed this to be an exclusive, protected relationship. His spirit will hover over it. You're going to have all kinds of thoughts and ideas, some of which seem like a great idea till you try them. <laughs> Others that you can't believe took 20 years to discover. <laughs> Whatever the two of you can dream of together is absolutely on the table, but you must have no dreams outside of each other. Amen. It's really that simple. Amen. Soon we're going to get to a group activity. It's going to regard the text of the most excellent poem in the Hebrew language. Did you know that song of songs literally means of all poems ever penned, this is the best poem there is? It's not songs of Solomon. I mean, it is, but that's not the right way to think about it. Of all Hebrew poetry, this is the best poetry that was ever produced. I want you to consider something. Genesis is poetry. The second chapter or the first chapter of Genesis is poetry. Psalms are poetry. But the book that has the title, the best of the best of the best, is about human sexuality in a monogamous marriage eternal covenant. Okay, now we're not going to do that yet. We are going to do it. But first, we want to ask you how long you would feel comfortable without your spouse drinking water. Hours? Days? Weeks, because throughout the scripture, sexual intimacy between a husband and wife is always referred to in terms of fountains, wells, and my favorite, well-watered gardens. Amen. Now, when we've taught that the distance between life and death is three days in the scripture, one of the misnomers, I mean, really bad misapplications of what we're teaching is, well, we'll shoot for every three days. You mean you intend to let each other almost die? See, that is a serious misapplication of what was rightly taught and totally misunderstood. 
if you shoot for every three days, it'd be every seven. If you shoot for every seven days, it'd be a couple times in a month. How many of you hit every goal that you're aiming at? Why don't you shoot for daily drinking from a fountain of intimacy in, in whatever way you are physically capable of? Yes. Daily. And that way, if there happens to be some day that it is just impossible, it never turns into three days. Yeah. There's a passage I'd like Jennifer to read you. 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There is one acceptable excuse for missing a day. You were praying with each other. That's not why you are missing times of intimacy with each other, though, is it? You were too tired. The kids were just too busy. Work was too hard. You need to set a conviction, and you need to set a biblical conviction. This is the only way that you fan into flame the very lamp that God put within you. Paul himself says, do not deprive one another except by mutual consent for the purpose of an extended prayer time. Now, I don't know how long it takes you to pray through the tabernacle. In my home, we can pray through the tabernacle for quite some time. If you're going to pray together every day, if that's a goal and it would be unacceptable to miss it, although I know many of you are missing it, if it would be unacceptable to miss that, why is it acceptable to you to not renew your marriage daily? Okay. We've been married 28 years. Do the math on that sometime. It's glorious. We're getting better at it all of the time. Let's have a group activity. Okay. The group activity is as an individual couple, you are going to read through Song of Songs, the fourth chapter. The husband will read aloud to the wife, verses 1 through 15, because it's, it's a male perspective. And the wife will read aloud in response, like call and response, verse 16. Then you're going to, we'll leave the slide up for you. Then you're going to go to Song of Songs 7. And the husband will read aloud verses 1 through the first half of the ninth verse. And wife, you will respond, call and response, with 9b through 13. Now, could you ever go wrong reading two whole chapters of the Bible in an evening? I want you to notice that the patterns that are laid out in this, you've been being taught for five weeks now. Because they are biblical. It is how God views your marriage. Y'all ready for your break? Get busy. All right, all right, let's find our seats again. So some of you seem supremely happy. Look, we couldn't help but notice that uh, 
Many of the women walked in tonight in new outfits and That's because there are things that are in, yeah, we, we see more thigh-high boots in here tonight than I've seen on any other night ever. <laughs> I, I hope you started to pick up on a few things as you went through Song of Songs this time. There's a pattern in these. In Song of Songs 4, he starts at the top of her head and describes her all the way to the bottoms of her feet. In Song of Songs 7... He starts at her sandaled feet and moves all the way to the top of her head. That is biblical, godly, holy speech. It's not awkward. It's not weird. It's by God's design. And the reason that so many women dressed up tonight is because you crave this from your husband, whether you know it or not. Husband, she craves it, whether you know it or not. In the fourth chapter, she responds with a singular kind of phrase. But in the seventh chapter, their intimacy through security has grown. And she actually responds by one-upping him. We can do that and this and a whole lot more. That is biblical intimacy. And it's something that we want to learn and grow in because it makes a healthy marriage. Uh, we don't want to cause any fights in here tonight. If this was awkward for you, then you are immature in your sexual life, no matter what age you are. And you must grow up. Your marriage depends upon it. That's not base. That's not navel. That is the Abigail design as is mentioned throughout the word and we've been teaching on. Now, in the same way that all of those things on the table down there, I almost can't look at a kiwi. I can't tell you. It reminds me of my time in India in ways I did not like. <laughs> all of those things on the table down there have other insinuations. This language in Song of Songs 4 and Song of Songs 7 is loaded with it in Hebrew imagery. You have to remember, they did not have digital photography. You have to remember, they were not bombarded by billboards. They didn't have radio and television. So they used what was available to them as designed by God to create anticipation, to create arousal, to create response so that they could participate together in an Eden-like existence. We're going to walk through this line by line with you. Is that all right? Is that all right? Let's all turn to Song of Songs 4, chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 1. It says this, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. <laughs> so those of you that have been to Israel with us, uh, I may have pointed it out because it was in 97 that I first realized what this verse meant. I wasn't at Mount Gilead, I was actually at Mount Hermon. But on a sunshiny day where snow was beginning to melt on the mountain, there were 
a flock of goats descending, zigzagging across the mountain. And I had been away from home a little while. <laughs> and I began to think about the curls of my wife's hair as she gets out of the shower and how it makes me think about every other curve on her body. This imagery is loaded, and it is set in a Jewish setting where most of the girls have brown hair like Christy. And he is trying to describe, he's actually succeeding, it's me who's trying here. He's succeeding in describing beautiful flowing curls in a way that was noble and majestic. Verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn. Coming up from the washing, each has its twin, not one of them is alone. Now, what strikes us is strangely humorous, like uh, maybe a West Virginian talking to his wife. Uh, in the biblical sense, if you spent all day around sheep and see how dirty and, and ugly their wool gets, but on the day they're shorn, you see something that is white and renewed and healthy and vibrant. He's speaking with Hebrew game about his wife. Verse 3. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. This one is downright salacious. Now... Most of the women in the room have on lipstick, and you don't know why you wear lipstick. You wear it because mom wore it, grandma wore it. You think it just looks nice. That is not why people historically have worn lipstick. During the process of female arousal, certain areas are engorged, and one of them are the lips on her face. And to say that she had scarlet lips was to say that he could see that she was responsive to his advances. He could see, and, and it is attractive to him. Now, this is not just base biology. This is God's design. He is attracted to the fact that she is aroused by him. Verse 4. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance. On it hang a thousand shields. All of them shields of warriors. Now, we can do this with every verse because it is clearly there. But like beautiful architecture that is associated with an amazing theme, he is relating his wife's neckline to the most beautiful tower he's seen that is noble, like something with nobility hanging on it. For us, this would not be much different than stretching out and looking at the the curves on your wife's neck, and just describing them in the most flowing, elegant way that you know how. And he's being inspired by God to do so. Verse 5. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Now, you might have been okay with this until we got to this passage. And they're like, that's in the Bible? Yes, it's in the Bible. And not only are twins cute... Not only are they gazelles, which are soft and cuddly, but they're browsing among the lilies. If you're standing on a hillside in Israel, the lilies are near the river's edge. And you can see movement, but you're not quite, quite sure what's there, and you're waiting to see. And then out springs a surprise gazelle. Wait, there's two. 
I can see that most of you got it. Verse 6. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. There's not much more that has uh, got a longer-lasting, holistic impression on the senses than sense do. Myrrh is one of the finest of the ancient spices, and it's tied to memory. And he is saying to her that he cannot wait to go to him to, to her, he cannot wait to go to her, which to him is like being on a mountain of the best spelling, smelling spices he could possibly immerse himself in. Verse 7, all beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come on, ladies. Can you find a flaw in you? Don't you want to believe that he can't? Yeah. He knows what will move her heart, and he's being inspired by God, not just to tell her what she wants to hear, but what she needs to hear. There are Ephesians 5 implications in this. You are to present her to yourself as spotless, and when you do, it's arousing. Verse 8, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana. From the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of the leopards. Whatever he just said, it was not boring. <laughs> He's describing an adventure. He's describing mountain peaks and dangers of lions. It's not, uh, well, I mean, it's midnight, nothing's on TV. You want to have sex? He is describing an adventure. And he's inviting her to come on an adventure with him and he's using geography and uh even animal predatory uh imagery to impose a sense of well this is a bit risky but it's going to be fun verse 9 you have stolen my heart my sister my bride you have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes with one jewel of your necklace to have the most powerful man in israel completely stolen away just by her response. This is the power of heart-turning femininity. It's a superpower. He's called to lead a nation. He's called to lead a home. And he is stolen away at the fact that she's starting to notice how attracted he is to her. Verse 10. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any spice? Now, I don't know what the Baptist church would do with this. I don't much care. Here, wine brings warmth. It's, a, it's <laughs> intoxicating. And he is describing her appearance, her fragrance. The adventure that he wants to go on with her is something that is intoxicating to him. Verse 11. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like that of Lebanon. Again, fragrances and taste. I want you to understand that if you've ever been on a low-carb diet forever, when you walk into a room, you can smell somebody just cooked bread. You can smell the sugar in the bread. If you've ever fasted for a while and somebody opens a gallon of milk on the other side of the house, you realize you missed something for many years. Milk is sweet, right? He is describing her in a way that has heightened his senses 
and with the sweetest terms that are not emotionally sweet, physically sweet, honeycomb, milk, honey under the tongue. He, who wouldn't want to think that their spouse thinks of them this way? And he's being inspired by the Spirit to do so. Verse 12. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Now this is as graphic as it could possibly get, but it's also very sweet. He's saying that she came from God hermetically sealed. Her hymen is intact. They have not yet had intercourse, and he can't wait to. But he describes that in terms of a garden or fountain or a spring that is sealed and enclosed, which means she's been storing something for him and no one else. Now, this is a marriage seminar. So we are beyond the sealed garden. But what you're going to find out in the seventh chapter she continues to store things up for him every day, waiting to see whether he's anticipating her. She continues that process. What she did in her youth being chased continues in her thoughts and her anticipations in the chapters to come. Verse 13. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrhs and aloes, all and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. This would be salacious if it wasn't so holy. He's describing her physical response, which is uh, engorgement and moisture. And he's, he's putting it parallel to the most uh, pleasing fragrances and the choicest of fruits that he can think of in his time. He's saying, I can see biologically that you were responding to me and I crave this more than any other thing. Now, if you put yourself, couples, in this before we even hear her response, tell me, does this sound like a marriage that sucks? Yeah, you have to decide whether you want your marriage to suck or not. I kind of want a marriage that is on fire in every way. You are not a spiritual being separated from a physical existence. You are a merger of the spiritual and the physical. And God intends holistically for you to enjoy each other. In fact, here comes her response. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, and that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. You can see how <laughs> she is anticipating and excited and looking forward to this. This is not someone who is um, feeling like uh, it's a necessity of having to. It's something that she is longing for, looking forward to, and excited about. You know, we'd, we'd never make it into Song of Songs because it's not godly, it's not inspired, it's not biblical speech. Okay, I guess if we have to. Never make it. It's not in there. Well, I guess I, it's my duty. Never make it in there. Okay. I want you to pay careful attention to something that in large groups, I'm not sure how to handle, so I'm just going to do it. Garden, 
Garden is a consistent euphemism for her vagina. Uh, fountain for their sexual life. You read verse 16 to yourself and see in the Peshat if you can figure out what they're talking about. I haven't met an honest Bible scholar, but it's plainly written right here. And I'm not a coward or a Puritan, and I don't want to have anything to do with those that think that way. No area of her body is off limits to him and no area of his body is off limits to her because the marriage bed is pure. The only thing that could make it impure is if there were a third party in thought or action introduced. And that is not what is happening here. We want to read now Song of Songs 7 for you guys. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O oh princess daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of a craftsman's hands. He sounds like ZZ Top. She got legs. <laughs> he starts this time because he's mixing it up. He's not a one-trick pony, uh, a, a one-statement chump. <laughs> he, is, uh, he is examining... This time, her feet all the way up to the top of her head. Mm -hmm. And he starts with the nobility of her feet that are sandaled like a prince's daughter and describes the curvatures of her legs like, like jewels that were fastened. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Now, this is funny to us because we're mixing agriculture into what is sensual language. But this is, um, if you've ever seen mounds of wheat, <laughs> he sees something in her shape that reminds him of beautiful harvest in creation. And did you notice, I, I'm not aware of any way to make a baby with a navel. Okay, if you know how, please send us an anonymous email. He is drinking blended wine from her navel. People that believe that sexual activities are solely for the purpose of creating a baby are morons. They're missing the point. You do not drink blended wine from a navel simply because you think that it's a way to create a baby. They are playing with each other. They're enjoying each other. He loves every facet of, and yeah, I mean, you have to picture, they made jello shots and put them in her belly button. Okay. That took some time. Yes. That took some thought. It was some anticipation. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. I think we need not expound on that further. <laughs> you go explore the mysteries of that this evening. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath, Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. Okay, again, he's picked the most beautiful architecture that he can find. It, it is associated with other imagery in their minds. He's describing her 
in the most of majestic terms because it's how he sees her. It's how he wants her to see her. Confidence is growing. Yeah. Arousal is growing. And freedom is about to happen. Amen. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. If you've ever seen Mount Carmel as you're going through the Jezreel Valley or coming up the coastlands of, of Israel from the other side, it is majestic. And he is talking about her in majestic terms. He's describing her head. He's describing her hair. But more than that, he's describing his captivation with her. I, and he calls himself the king. Okay. I want to emphasize to you that no Gentile nation on earth could captivate this king. No man on earth could captivate this king. He is literally the top of the food chain. But just glancing at the way her hair rolls off of her head has captivated him. That's not base. That's beautiful. Amen. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, O oh love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm and your breast like clusters of fruit. Okay, knowing what you know now, clearly he's describing another adventure. And as humorous as it was to ask Cody to climb the palm tree, in the immortal words of uh, Stevie Miller, the space cowboy, he intends to climb this tree and take hold of its peaches. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. <laughs> the idea is the wide base at the bottom, the narrow waistline of the tree, and the fruit at the top. He is clearly talking about the effort that it takes to unwrap this present yeah. is worth it, yeah. and I cannot wait. Amen. He's building anticipation. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Look, I don't think for adults I need to be any more graphic than this is, but let me just ask you, where do you put the clusters of the vine? Where, where do you put apples? Where do you drink the best of wines? He is associating what he wants to do with his mouth with her breast. That's not because he's an infant and needs to be fed. That's because this is a part of God's design. Amen. If you only needed them to feed children, then they would only appear when you had children. <laughs> May the wine go straight to my lover. Oh, yeah. Flowing gently over lips and teeth. I love this because you can see immediately the confidence in this response. Because in the beginning when we looked at Psalm 4, it was just a one-word sentence. But now she's got so much more to say because she is confident that he desires her. He longs for her. And so she is confidently able to respond back to this. I would like to ask you in your own time, maybe this evening, to go back and research all the places that she put wine. And now she's inviting him mm -hmm. to come and get it. Okay. His affirmation of her has made her confident enough to respond in kind. 
which is why we have been talking about affirming God's design since week one. Everybody comes into marriage counseling and you very much want to get to the issues you want to get to. And if you knew how to resolve them, then you wouldn't be having them. We started where the Bible starts and we've been moving forward. Okay. Watch how beautiful this gets. I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. What is she rejoicing over? His pursuit, his desire of her. Okay. Uh, there's nothing that should make a woman feel more alive than her husband's pursuit of her. And she's responding because it is making her feel alive. Men in the room, you need to pursue your wife. Wife, you can play hard to get, but you ought to be very careful how hard to get you play. Okay? Because you want to be caught. And if you don't, we need to go to a doctor. Actually, you don't. You need to get on your knees in prayer and get your life right. Come, my lover, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. I love this one because she is anticipating, she's excited about it, and she's trying to create that environment that's special and unique because she longs to be with him and she loves that he desires to be with her and she wants to create this intimate little getaway with him. They don't go to the public square. They don't hop in a back seat at a crowded park. They go away to the countryside. Security promotes intimacy. Now, earlier, he suggested adventures. He suggested, yeah, we'll come from this mountain and there'll be lions. And there Now she yeah. is suggesting adventures. You really want to step up your game? Learn to suggest adventures. And when you think, but I don't know if we'll like that. That's right. You don't know. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. I love this because in the beginning of the day, she's thinking about this. This is important to her. She knows exactly what uh, she wants, what she's excited about, and it's something that she... Um, She's anticipating. It's early in the morning, but she's already trying to create this little, uh, you know, day with him so that they can enjoy one another. I don't know if you uh, have a background in horticulture. I do not, except as it relates to these passages. The blossoms have opened. The pomegranates are in bloom. The vines have budded. She is describing in every way possible to her that she has come into spring. In every way she's anticipating this as much as he is anticipating it. Where it starts with him initiating and then her reciprocating, now it is growing to where she is also saying, and this, and this, and this. In other words, the flame of their passions are rising together. So if you're sitting back going, okay, well, y'all taught he needs to, to initiate, and he's just not that interested. Well, start planning countryside horticulture. Yeah. <laughs> start thinking about how to get um, 
your pomegranates to bud. Start making it a home that he never wants to leave. And you know what? Y'all will stir something up in each other. Husband, it is your job to pursue her. If you're hurt, if you uh, feel rejected, well, get a set of biblical stones, scriptures. Stand on those scriptures and do what is right. And she will learn to respond. That's the gravity of love. You cannot wipe away years of bad behavior in minutes. You'll have to be a man. The mandrakes send out their fragrance. And at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my lover. Now, even in the crappiest of study Bibles, uh, some of which you own, they'll tell you a mandrake is an aphrodisiac. That's not an accident, okay? The mandrakes send out their fragrance is the politest but most visual way for her to say, uh, I'm as aroused as you are. And then notice this next phrase, at our door. Not the neighbor's door, not my door at our door is every, somebody say every, every delicacy, both new and old. We figured out four or five of our favorites and we're about to find three or four more. Now check out the last part that I have stored up for you. He's not the only one thinking about this all day. She's been thinking about it all day, and she's got some suggestions. <laughs> Ladies, I can't tell you how important that is, to have something stored up at the beginning of the morning, at the end of the day, for your husband. You need to be in prayer, and I know that things, things are really, you know, with kids, and there's all kind of stuff going on during the day and everything else. But this is something very, very vital to your marriage, to your life, to have something stored up at the end of the day for him. Storing up does not just mean, well, I'll submit. Okay. That's, that's, uh, that is sad. Storing up means that while you were considering a field, like a Proverbs 31 woman, while you were making clothes, while you were doing all of the things that are in male and female life, all of the responsibilities of the day. You also were thinking, looking forward to, and anticipating your union with each other. You know, honey, how was your day? Well, I had to balance this checkbook. I had to change this tire. I had to do this. But you know what I was thinking about between all of those things? That furniture and this positioning. Honey, how was your day? Well, baby threw up on me. So-and-so had a problem. This, it was a day. I could not wait for the moment we lock that door, turn on this music, light that candle, and get lost in each other. See, this is a home that not only does shalom thrive in, not only does marriage symbolism thrive in, it's a home that forges Abigail in each other. You work according to your godly design. You look forward to every day and every evening. And even when your body does not, your spirit does. Amen. 
That is a conviction you need to learn to set. Have you ever walked into worship not feeling like worship? Yeah, I'm so glad that only a couple of you enthusiastically said yes. But as you begin to worship, your feelings start to catch up with your convictions. Physical intimacy is important. It's not a secondary need. It's not a male need. It's not a female need. It is a you. To, it's what formed your marriage, and it's what keeps your marriage strong and vibrant. I can tell you, if you have a strong connection with your husband, if this is something that's extremely important in your life, you can face anything. You can have difficulties of any kind, but when you come together and you're intimate together, it bonds you in a way and it creates a relationship that is so strong and the foundation is there. It creates a security in me that I, I have to have. I crave it. I desire it. I tell them all the time. I'm like, I need your touch. I need I, immediately. I'm able to be vulnerable and say, I need time with you because I know what it creates in me. And you can have a list of, you know, a hundred items in the day and get all of them done. But if you don't have intimacy and this security and this confidence with your spouse, you've done nothing. You've just been spinning your wheels all day. That's literally valuing the wrong things. Now, normally in a biblical society, you would go away together for a year with no other responsibilities so that you could learn these things. Yeah. That, that was the point. You learn how to make each other happy. And I don't mean just physically perform. I mean, you learn, oh, my husband doesn't notice that I'm feeling distant because he has not put his hands on me. So you learn to tell him. <laughs> I mean, my, my wife literally, I, I'm getting old. I'm a grandpa now. So there, there are days that I'm not driven like I was as a teenager. And she looks at me and goes, I just need you to need me. And I'm like, oh, come here. Let's pray together. We begin to do love language together. And before long, we're renewing our marriage in every possible way, Amen. which is holy. It's right. It's spiritual. It's good. And just to be completely honest, not getting this right, you'll end up good friends. She calls him my lover. You were not called to be friends. You have friends. The friends are completely separate from this relationship. This relationship by definition is different because you are lovers. I think some of you have great friendships and I'm proud of you for that. That is woefully short of the standard that Christ sets for you. You are to be daily passionate lovers. And if refractory times and medical problems and everything else has gotten in the way, well, then you need to daily physically affirm each other in whatever way that you can. But there must never be a day where there is not joyful anticipation of your union with one another that is reciprocal. Husband, you initiate. Wife, you learn to supernaturally one-up him. And your marriage will be happy for the rest of your life. Church, this is such life-giving speech. It is truth that is scripturally derived. You can hear it. The truth is, is, is if, you had, if you've done your homework and just read through the book of Song of Songs, you understand that what's being said tonight is truth. This is not the measure for the, for the elite in the kingdom, for the few. 
we are telling this to you because this is the goal and this is the trajectory that every family should be on, that every couple should have. We're not giving you something that you could choose to think about or choose to, you can choose to accept or choose to deny. This is a biblical standard that this, that sexual intimacy and exclusive monogamous relationship is a gift from God. It is holy. It is righteousness. It's just as righteous and just as holy as you praying with your spouse. See, these aren't things that you get to decide whether you like. We want and encourage every single family in these areas. Since you're still there in Song of Songs 7. Yeah, just one more passing comment because we do want to move forward. There are some amazing things that are about to happen and we're including breaks an hour and 45 minutes in. The worldwide domination of what is called the Dark Ages allowed the Catholic Church to teach people that were illiterate of the Bible that sex was to produce children only. And this caused the church to take the stand that contraception is wrong because the only purpose for having sex is to produce children. Of course, effeminate homosexual priests were the ones that were teaching this. And all of these elements that God put in our design simply found other avenues, which is why there were pregnant nuns and scared little boys everywhere. It is a terrible perversion, one that we reject in favor of the biblical truth. In 30, 28 years, 20, how many ever years? Almost three decades. I have never met a couple that prays together every day and is physically intimate with each other every day, even come close to divorce. But I've seen many couples on the edge of divorce take a 30-day challenge and their marriage is completely rejuvenated. The marriage counseling was as simple as pray together and have sex together every day. Amen. And it... And that in and of itself is shockingly the thing that bonded you at the beginning. If David and Jennifer were a biblical couple, when they met each other, it would have been to sign a marriage contract. The next time they saw each other would be at an altar. And then moments later, they would be physically consummating their marriage. And God knew from that physical action, their souls would become intertwined. You want to get closer to each other? <clears throat> Get closer to each other. Amen. Song of Songs, chapter 8 and verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. We are trying to drive home a point to you tonight. That your bedroom needs to be absolutely unquenchable. Amen. That the waters of of worry that the rivers of of busyness of distraction cannot quench your love cannot quench your bedroom that your bedroom is an absolutely unquenchable place that the core of your life is seen you get to see the healthiness of your relationship with god as you see the healthiness of your relationship one with another that's so true you know, you can actually pray to the God in heaven, the one that is the master and the creator of all of the world, to actually help you. 
You can be in a place to where you are reaching out to God and asking him for good gifts to help this become unquenchable. It can be a beautiful thing that you guys develop and get creative together. You don't have to stay where you are. You can ask God and he will help you because he wants to. We were talking earlier, Wade and I were just talking about this whole subject, and we're like, there's, there are sexual relationships that you're like, you know what, we've done it this way for 10 years, um, and, and it's good, and it's good. And, and we, we told it like this. I said, I said, it's kind of like you go to dinner, and you have you know, chicken, rice, and a veggie every night. It's good. You can kind of get a little flavorful with this, chicken, rice, and a veggie every single night. But what we don't know is that there is a master worldwide chef that's right in that kitchen. And he can give you anything, any flavor, any spice that you need. And it's just for the asking. So if we just call back and actually talk to that master chef, if we talk to Jesus and say, Lord, I don't know. This, I've been okay with this. But Lord, we want to spice it up. Ask him. He can do it. He wants to give you spice. He wants to give you life. He wants to give you that unquenchable love life. That was good advice. Every delicacy, both old and new, that is the most excellent of Hebrew poems right there. Bezalel is a man introduced in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, he's the first man in all of the Bible who is filled with the Spirit from the moment of his introduction. He didn't get filled. He was already filled when you find out who he is. He was anointed by God to do something. Built. Am I the only one that that at first glance strikes as, now, wait a minute. I mean, you have to be anointed to build You wouldn't normally think of a construction worker praying that God anoint him to fasten two by fours together. But what he was building was God's temple. How much more will God anoint, enable, and inspire you to bond with one another physically if you ask him to? Amen. Amen. Isn't that liberating? It's encouraging. It's strengthening. That God will anoint you to build this intimacy through security. When you had that attitude like what's spoken in Micah. As for me, I am filled with power. I am filled with the ability to build this intimacy through security. Let's look again at Song of Songs chapter 1 and verse 16. How handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. Oh, we see this again. Our bed is verdant. Let me show that slide that we showed you guys earlier. Look at this slide. I want you to understand the marriage bed begins pure and it is to be kept pure. The goal is that this pure marriage bed grows into one that is verdant, teeming with life, filled with prolific activities thriving like the garden of eden the very pleasure center that is god's gift of marriage it's in the marriage bed that our love for each other becomes dense and thick with physical intimacy much like a flourishing jungle full of life 
Oh, Woo, jungle. Yeah. There are a couple medical articles that we want to read to you from. Now, uh, that may not sound exciting, but on this topic, I think you'll find it uh, enlivening. Yeah. Amen? Okay, the first one is titled, How Sexual Frequency Affects a Woman's Sexual Responsiveness, Fertility, and Health. This is by a couple that pastors together with a medical background. Most people know what happens to a man when sex is infrequent, but many don't understand how a woman's body responds to the same thing. The table below compares the effects of sexual frequency in men and women. Note that a woman's changing hormones affect her sex drive too, and this may mask the effects at some times of the cycle and multiply the effects at other times. We have a slide that we want to show you, and we're going to talk through it very quickly. But this graph shows us that as sexual frequency declines, these are the following things that happen. So as the sex decreases, here's what happens. The strength and awareness of desire, that strength and awareness of desire in me, it increases. And in me, it decreases. The uh, ease of arousal in me, it's definitely more easily aroused. And in, yeah. and in me, it's less easily aroused. <clears throat> well, the amount of stimulation that's actually needed to climax. Somebody say climax. Climax. Uh, in me, it's less than normal. <laughs> and in me, it would be more than normal. The ease of climaxing. Uh, the truth is, is in me, it's very, very easy. <laughs> and for me, it becomes increasingly difficult. The intensity of the climax. In me, the orgasm gets stronger as the sexual frequency declines. And in me, the orgasm is shorter and feels less pleasurable. As we read through the rest of this article, what that chart is immediately illustrating is God put biologically in a man the desire to have sex more frequently so that he is better at it. He put biologically in a woman the desire that the more sex she has, the more she wants to have. If you are having sex infrequently, your ability, husband, to be pleasing actually is decreasing. While what it takes for her to be pleased requires more. You're moving apart from one another yeah. biologically. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly, when you're seeing this chart, men and women respond differently to sexual frequency. As can be seen from the information that we showed you, the less often a woman has sex, the less she will want sex, the less she will enjoy sex, and the more difficult it will be for her to become aroused and then climax. This has been borne out repeatedly in studies of the sexual frequency of women who go from partner to partner. These women tend to masturbate more while in a relationship than while being celibate. Apparently, God designed women to become more and more interested in sex as they become more active. Even more startling evidence of a woman's need for regular sex can be found in Winfred's B. Cutler's book, Love Cycles. Dr. Cutler did a number of studies comparing the menstrual regularity of different women. 
Her data show a strong cause and effect between the frequency of intercourse and the length and regularity of the menstrual cycle. Women who had, who had sex two or more times a week had the most regular cycles. Women who had sex once a week were slightly less regular. Celibate women were still less regular, and women who had sporadic sex or sex less than once a week had the most irregular cycles. A variety of hormonal differences were seen, including higher estrogen levels in the women who had regular sex. Interestingly, it was heterosexual intercourse with or without female orgasm that caused the changes. Neither homosexual acts or masturbation had any effects. Tell me that God is not at work in our design. Yeah. Yeah. Homosexual activity did not produce positive results. Self-stimulation did not produce positive results. Only heterosexual, frequent monogamous sex has these positive biological effects on your body. The regulating agent seems to be a pheromone, a sort of airborne hormone released by the man's body during arousal and or climax. Husband, you think that you need this more than she does at most ages. Biologically, she needs the interaction more than you do. There is an airborne hormone that she has to have or her body will not function rightly. Dr. Cutler's conclusion was how often a woman engages in sexual behavior with a man strongly affects her endocrine system. While this is interesting, it has little relevance in and of itself. Other studies and data complete the picture. Fertility is very much linked to menstrual regularity. There is also a clear correlation between menstrual regulation and overall health. The more regular the woman's cycle, the better her overall health. The benefits of the hormonal change in those having intercourse at least twice a week include better fertility, stronger bones, better cardiovascular health, less depression, lower incidence of fibrocystic breast disease and uterine cancer, and a de decrease in menopausal symptoms such as hot flashes and depression. Look at your spouse Miracle. and say, we need to do this for our health. Spiritual health and physical health. Furthermore, regular intercourse after menopause has ongoing benefits to both the sexual and general health of the woman. Clearly, the Lord created women to have frequent heterosexual relations. Sporadic or irregular sex is actually detrimental to the woman's health, while regular intercourse has great benefits. God's rules for sex create the perfect situation for keeping a woman's body strong and healthy. Amen. Now, we, these were direct quotes from medical articles. We, we didn't gerrymander them. This next one is called Oxytocin in Women, the Bridge Between Touch and Sex. Touch is so vital to humans, and most of us don't get nearly enough of it. Babies deprived of touch don't develop normally because certain connections in the brain actually disappear. 
Orphans who receive very or very little touch often die as a result. And those who do survive experience permanent physical and mental retardations. Kids who don't get enough touch grow up to become aggressive and antisocial adults. I can attest to that firsthand. I grew up in a house that did not touch, and that is how it affected me. And I immediately was drawn to a wife that was touchy-feely. I hated it, and I loved it and needed it all in the same moment. Okay? Older adults who don't get enough touch also suffer and become senile sooner, even dying earlier. We're all affected by touch, and it's not all in our mind. Rather, it's the result of complex hormonal responses which actually change our bodies and our brains. Touch causes our bodies to produce a hormone called oxytocin. Not only does touch stimulate production of oxytocin, but oxytocin promotes a desire to touch and to be touched. It's a feedback loop that can have wonderful results. Oxytocin makes us feel good about the person who causes the oxytocin to be released, and it causes a bonding between the two persons. <laughs> Nursing a baby produces oxytocin in both mother and child, and this is a major part of what initially bonds that mother and her baby together. Even thinking of someone we love can stimulate this hormone. When women in a good marriage were asked to think about their husbands, the level of oxytocin in their blood rose quickly. There's more. Y'all say there's more. There's more. Oxytocin plays a significant role in our sexuality, too. Higher levels of oxytocin result in greater sexual receptivity because oxytocin increases testosterone production, which is responsible for sex drive in both men and in women. Sex drive can also increase. Moreover, this hormone does not just create a sexual desire in women. Coupled with estrogen, it creates a desire to be penetrated. That is, makes her want intercourse. Amen. Oxytocin increases the sensitivity of the penis and the nipples, improves erections, and makes both orgasm and ejaculation stronger. It may even increase sperm counts. And while oxytocin can move us towards sex, sex increases the production of oxytocin. Nipple stimulation, genital stimulation, and intercourse all raise the level of oxytocin in men and women. Yes. yes. Orgasm causes the levels to spike even higher three to five times normal, creating that afterglow closeness that is experienced following lovemaking. Now, I want you to catch something here. Frequency allows you to reach orgasm more quickly, better, together. Then oxytocin, the role of touch, is released when you're having sex and at higher levels when you're orgasming and higher than that when it's mutual and it creates a constant feedback loop go figure if in 28 years you do something 10,000 times you get better at it yeah. or you become a junkie <laughs> craving it yes like song of songs amen 
Look, the fact that sex increases oxytocin levels can be helpful for women who complain they never feel like sex. Having sex, even when you don't have a drive to do so, will actually affect you in ways that will result in a greater sex drive. This also explains, at least in part, why many women find that the more sex they have, the more they want, and the less sex they have, the less they want. Of course, no hormones act independently. Hormones amplify or reduce each other's effects and increase or decrease production of other hormones. Among other things, oxytocin increases the production of both estrogen and testosterone. Oxytocin has a special relationship with estrogen. Oxytocin is virtually powerless without estrogen, and oxytocin's effects are increasingly powerful as estrogen levels rise. This explains why women are far more affected by touch than men. Women have much higher levels of estrogen than men. This also explains why women respond to the same touch differently at different times of the month. When her estrogen is high at ovulation, even a slight touch can have a strong effect. When estrogen is low, menstruation, it will take more touch to get less of a response. Another interesting effect of oxytocin is that it decreases mental processes. Yeah. And it actually impairs your memory. <laughs> Amen. This is why hugging and touching can help us recover from an argument. It's almost like it should be a non-negotiable in your marriage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the oxytocin helps us to stop thinking about it and even forget some of the pain that we felt. While hugging may not, may not be a natural response during a conflict, it can quickly cool things off. Oh, it does. Yeah, we're going to hug it out and then work it out. That's good. While most of us suffer from living in an anti-touch, social distancing society. Boo. Double those masks up. Boo. Right. Women tend to feel more touch-starved than men do. Probably due to the fact that they have more estrogen. A woman who is not receiving enough touch becomes withdrawn and even depressed. In this condition, a woman can become strongly and even violently opposed to sexual touch. If the situation continues, she may become so withdrawn that she is no longer open to the very touch she needs. So how do we touch more? Men, you be a man. Amen. Mostly, we need to be aware of the very need. We need to re retrain ourselves and look for opportunities to touch. Even a gentle, brief touch has an effect. And the more, the better. Learn to walk hand in hand or arm in arm. When you go to church or watch TV or read the word or sitting, talking to friends, sit close enough to touch each other. When we you're can both, tell if you're listening to us right now, what should you be doing? Touching. When you're both reading Find a way to be in contact with each other. Even sitting at opposite ends of the couch with your feet touching will work. When you're eating together, play footsies. Rub each other's shoulders or feet or anything else in between. Check or out give, the gazelles. 
or give a long, thorough, and deep tissue massage. Do anything which brings your body into contact with your spouse and do it often. Amen to that. That's a medical journal, by the way. Look, for five weeks, uh, everything that we have been aiming at is to live within your godly design, becoming everything that God has actually called you to be. Uh, we have just a, a little, uh, a few fun activities as we end the evening. Okay, guys, I need you to do two things for me. On the table, there's a little bowl, and it should have some fortune cookies in there. Every one, every one per couple, and then everybody also at the same time, pull out your Abigail and a ball card for me. Everybody got it? Okay, so you should have something that looks a little bit like this. They're not real, so don't eat them, okay? Don't eat them, okay? But what we do is we discovered a revelation when we were teaching this one time. Uh, everyone, quickly take out your Abigail cards, and much like the old fortune cookie game, did anybody ever go to a Chinese restaurant, you sit, had your meal, you sat down at the end, and everybody's like, okay, grab it, grab it, grab the fortune cookie. We get the fortune cookie, and we open it up, and what everyone does at the table is we read it, and then at the very end, we say what? In bed, right? And we all giggle, and it's funny, and all those things. Well, as we did this, we realized this is the same thing when we apply our Abigail traits, okay? So look at your card with your partner and go through them and then add in bed. That is the fun game that we are going to challenge you guys with tonight. To make sure that it's clear... This is true of both your Nabal and Abigail traits. When you're in the flesh, you can throw the word in bed after your Nabal trait, and I promise that is true. But our focus tonight is you are only looking at Abigail traits on this card, and you're going to find out it's who God called your spouse to be in bed. All right. So our final activity of the evening is to take you back in time in two ways. One of them is to remind you that in the first century, a Jewish wedding would have been preceded by a groom showing up outside the house with a glass of wine. If you accepted the glass of wine from him, ladies, you were now engaged. You drank it together. You share each other's fate. Whatever the cup held, it held for both of you. The next time you would see each other would be at an altar. At that altar, you would then share another glass of wine. When you left the altar, you went to consummate your marriage. That is the biblical norm. That's every wedding that Jesus ever attended. That is 
the biblical backdrop to every wedding. Well, we have a glass of wine for you on the table because we want you to remember the day that you got married. And on the day that you got married, God began binding you together. And he did that as a spiritual event through a physical activity. Because you were going to pledge yourselves to each other again. And then we're going to have a reception, a slow dance. And then you're going to eagerly go relive your first wedding night, but you're better at it now. You're going to go consummate your marriage. In fact, you can do that every day. God said, what he has put together, let no one separate. How did he put you together? How do you stay together? How do you avoid being separated on any level? Well, right now you get to practice it. We're going to pray for you. You can uh, then pour a glass of wine, renew your vows. No wine makes no difference. The point is go back to that moment in time when you said I do at an altar. And then have a dance with us and then go renew your wedding physically. Father, we thank you for the sanctity of this event. We thank you that your spirit drew each of the couples together and your spirit will keep them together as they physically obey the teachings of your word. Lord, we ask for renewal, for recreation, Lord, we ask for restoration and power to be given them in this setting. That they might be anointed to be in union with one another. As they renew their vows to each other. Lord, will you hover over the chaos of their situation and bring forth new life. As they dance with one another. Lord, would you let anticipation and joy Rise in their hearts for the union that is coming this evening. In the name of Jesus, we pray.